Welcome to the podcast, Don't Forget Me, about the life and times of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Chapter 7. I wanted to go back quickly to the community center to talk about, um, like, who you met. I know that that's where you started, like, you, when you guys decided to forward band, you were standing outside and like, you, come on, let's do it. But the community center, I know the role the synagogue played in your musical development and the, the records you heard at home, you know, the, diff- the variations of music you were listening to. But right. tell me about the community center and how it okay. played in. Community and center, the ages that pertain to. Community center was good for two reasons. Mm-hmm. Number one is good. It was good for when we used to rehearse. We used to rehearse in the bathrooms and the hallways. The great echoes in the bathroom, <laughs> aside from the smells from the bathroom, but the, the echo is the great. The echo is great. Uh, and we used to hang out there, and they had Friday night dances. And whenever we were singing something, I I was uh, I was the DJ on Friday nights, and I played all the music, of course. And then every once in a while, and when the, when the guys rehearsed a new song, we practiced it at the dance. On Friday nights, and it had a, had a big dance hall area. It had a sort of a, a kitchen counter where we sold drinks and things, and that's where the 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 record play was set up. So we'd play music. And the other other room was a pool table and a ping pong table, and then we had a weight room, and there was an activities room, and uh, we used to sing in the activities room, or again in the hallways or in the bathrooms when we used to do our rehearsing. Uh, but the other, the other part about the community center was the director of the community center. Her name was Catherine, Miss mm-hmm. Catherine. We called her, and she was my psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. She was the one that helped, that got me through my teen years. As a matter of fact, later on in my in my uh, psychiatric past, <laughs> when I'm going to a psychiatrist number one, two, or three, they always said to me. There had to be somebody in your teen years that got mm-hmm. you through that because you're more sane than you think you are mm-hmm. based on what you've gone through. And I said, it was Miss Catherine. I, when I, I used to come, come home from school, and I used to go down to the... There was a library where I used to do some of my homework, and then i go over to the community center, and I would be, be there about an hour and a half before it opened and, and pouring my heart out to Miss Catherine and getting advice about how to deal with my situation upstairs, because it was the same building that we lived in, was where the community center and the library were. Oh, really? Yeah. So that was at Cedric? That was at in the Cedric Projects at 1551 University Avenue. So you had, so was so the community center was, so, because I was going to ask that about Cedric, how interesting it was that so many people seemed to be in these kind of illustrious schools. Like, mm-hmm. what do you think that was based on? Like, why was Steve there and Gary there, you know, at those, you it's know. It's all economics. That was, that was it wasn't uh, projects in the sense of a, um, the low-income projects, mm-hmm. it was always, it was almost, you're always like middle income, mm-hmm. even though you had, you couldn't earn over a certain amount of money, otherwise you were kicked out. Uh, but it was, Cedric was one of the first um, housing development, national housing developments that were opened in the 50s. I think it was maybe the fourth one in the city. So, and uh, it was multi, multiracial, like yeah, income multiracial, within certain it, right. parameters. So they yeah. were sort of like put very right. low-income folks in one area, then they put sort of Middle well, Cedric, like, Cedric was more middle. Middle income, got right, it. Right, more middle income. But it was all different folks. Right, but uh, but it was primarily, I would say it was primarily white. I, I would say that. when I moved in there, probably it was at least 80% white, 
20% African-American. Some Hispanic. Uh, but uh, Still more integrated than the city was at the time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, the, the city was integrated, but in a different way. In a I mean, different uh, way, you know, you right. went up, you went up past uh, past uh, 90, 75th Street or 79th Street, and then it became African American and Spanish, right? Primarily, and then, then that slowly, I call it that sort of sort of the economic creep, uh, where now you, you buy my, we used to hang out at a brownstone. One of the uh, members lived in Harlem, uh, Junie Smith. Mm -hmm. And his, his his grandmother lived in a brownstone or owned a brownstone in in uh, off, on 126th Street. Mm -hmm. And uh, today <laughs> yeah. you got to pay oh God, two yeah. or three million for that brownstone. Uh, when when she first got it, uh, probably you, you couldn't give it away. Mm -hmm. You couldn't give it away. But those were very expensive because the Jewish neighborhood was Harlem mm -hmm. before it became African American. Then when the Jews left, then the African-American community moved in. So the Jews left in, like, what, you know, early 1900s? Like uh, probably starting in the, in the 30s. In the 30s. They started to migrate out to the boroughs, mm -hmm. uh, Bronx, Queens. Mm -hmm. is where uh, most of the Jewish population, and they left Manhattan and went to, went to the boroughs, or they went up to uh, Westchester County, or they went to Jersey, or they went to Long Island. And so when you started to meet other band members, when you started to meet people of color who were your band members, like all the di like different people than Steve and Gary, like, mm -hmm. and I'm interested too. We'll have to at some point talk about it. The fact that your mom sort of seems like she orchestrated your your introduction to Steve, yeah. or did he push his way into the house? No, he she she went out and did a she, she was, was like, on a, she was on a mission. Like each other. She was going to find a friend for me, oh. which is a good thing. It's a really yeah. good thing. Yeah. Yep. Okay, so then. When you and Steve then started standing outside the community center, mm -hmm. the community center was maybe, was that the place where you started to, like, I'm just trying to kind of make a, a, a focal point for these introductions. I'm trying to find the right, right way to do it. Well, there are, two, there are two, two places we congregated. Okay. First was the community center. And the community center was basically, it, it was, you know, after school um, until dinner time. And then sometimes I had evening activities and especially Friday night they're open late for, for the Friday night activities. Uh, but the other place we hung out was the Pocket Park, which is about 500 feet from the community center, mm. just, just down the street at the edge of my building, uh, which was straight on to this Pocket Park. On, on the right side was uh, 140 um, University Avenue, um, 140 West 175. Fifth Street, mm -hmm. the building on the other side that surrounded this on three sides was 150, and in the center was this pocket. We called it a pocket park, mm -hmm. and it had benches, it had barrels where kids played in and hung out in, and and um, swings, and um, and that's where and monkey bar and uh, and that's where the kids, that's where the teenagers used to hang out, you know, before you know, as soon as school ended. Uh, the moms uh, you know, took their baby carriages and their kids, and they brought them upstairs to get ready for dinner. And the kids started to congregate, and there were there were two parts of this park. Uh, the one part, the the part on the on the left, closer to my building, all of the kids from the projects hung out in that section. Mm -hmm. I called it the goody goody section. These are the good kids section. 
Then, then the outsiders that came from the area surrounding Cedric used to hang out in the, in the right side of the park. And those were the not-so-good not so kids, the kids that usually got in trouble all the time. And I spent my time between the both of them. Mm -hmm. Somehow the troublemaking side seemed to be a lot more attractive than the, <laughs> the goody-goody, two-side, two until I found Gail Kennedy, and she was part of the goody-goody crowd, and so that's where I sort of dumped the bad guys and went to the, went to the, the good side, mm. the bright side, whatever. What did that look like, goody-goody versus naughty? <laughs> like, what, well, was, it's, you know, like what I mean, was the nature of that? Uh, it's uh, just, they were, I wouldn't, it's, it's not a matter of just being clean cut. I just, they were a lot of studious, they always did their homework, they always mm -hmm. got great grades. They always dressed well. Um, it's just, there was a definition. Mm -hmm. It's just, and you, you could tell the definition. Mm -hmm. You could really tell the difference. And, the, and, and um, the, on the goody-goody side, the Jewish kids went with the Jewish kids, boys and girls. On the bad side, the Jewish girls went, went for the Italian boys, and the Jewish boys went for the Catholic girls. <laughs> that Funny. was that was the bad side. So they were pissing Maybe off bad their parents. Side the, the bad pain. side was pissing off their parents. The right. good side was like, I really want them yes. to be proud of me, right? right. <laughs> exactly. You got it. You, you got, and, got but it was all white kids in that pocket part, basically. Like yeah. it was, I mean, Italian, Jewish. You know, there were there were Catholic. two there were two African American families at one fifty, mm -hmm. and of those two families, one of them was Jackie Morgan's family, and the other one was John Duff's family. Mm -hmm. And they were in 150, and those are the two people that we chose uh, as to be part of our group. Because the original group, the satellites, was three white right. and two African-American. Right. So setting up for the, setting up for the podcast, you have to keep in mind there's, there's three timelines to this. There's a timeline taking place right now, and that's the development of the movie and the development of a, a musical, and, and that's where... Like everything sits is all of these sort of juggling balls going on. But the second timeline to this is Steve actually looking back on his life. And we incorporated that. I incorporated that into the, the screenplay itself. But then there's the timeline of the events as they happened. And in order to capture the events as they happened, that's something that you rely on people's memories. So when you dig into that, you really have to, you have to go back and start interviewing people. And one of the people that I interviewed, other than Steve, because, you know, Steve was a wealth of information to put all of this together. But Steve's brother, Jerry, has specific memories of, of Steve, obviously, but also of the timeline when, when things were starting to happen. So where we left off in in terms of of moving forward the events of of the kids is they've gone in and, and they've recorded a demo and that starts to propel them forward and it's interesting because they prope it propels them to their best shot at fame but at the same time towards their biggest disappointments but i, I do like talking to you and i love hearing about steve and i love hearing about your family no no that's it it's my pleasure to do this, that's for sure. I mean, uh, even though uh, Steve and I had some bad times uh, going back, and we 
you know, uh, we still had some very good times. I mean, <laughs> I'm thinking back now to what we put my parents through when we were actually living in Brooklyn. I mean, we drove them crazy, the things that we did. <laughs> oh, my God. There's, there's stories that I'm thinking about now that, uh, well, my mother I know at one time, and it's not a funny situation, but uh, she had to go into a place, you know, to, to recuperate because she was having almost a nervous breakdown because my with my brother and myself and what we did. Now, I want you to understand, my brother was worse than me, okay? <laughs> he, he was he was the because he was the only one, so he led me, you see. What did I know? I was three years younger. I figured if he wants to do this, it must be okay. At one time, he almost got me killed, but I'm sure he never told you that story. <laughs> but, no, I haven't heard this one. Oh, yeah, we were still living in Brooklyn, and uh, we lived about, um, oh, I would say about four or five blocks from... From the water, uh, we lived a little south of where the Verrazano Bridge is now. At that time, the Verrazano Bridge wasn't even built. But uh, we had gone to, so I must have been about eight or nine years old. So he was probably about 11 or 12. And there was this old um, coal shaft or whatever. I don't know. They used to pour coal from the top down and load the trucks. It was closed, and it should have been torn down, but it wasn't, so it was really dilapidated. We walked one day, and we come upon this thing right by the water, and my brother says to me, hey, why don't we climb up there? So me being the younger brother, I figured, hey, okay, we'll climb up there. It must be okay. My brother told me we can do it, right? So we climb all the way up, and we must have been about minimum of 20 feet up in the air, maybe 30 feet up in the air. And we're walking on these dilapidated wooden boards, and all of a sudden, one of them broke from underneath me. And I go down, and I'm hanging on this wooden plank <laughs> with my two, uh, two hands. And I'm looking down, and I'm screaming, and uh, she's finally, thank God, pulled me up. <laughs> but, um, yeah, that was a harrowing experience, that's for sure. But you see, that's what he did. He did that all the time for me. He, he put me... <laughs> Dangerous situations all the time. <laughs> I remember one time, um, still living in Brooklyn, it was in the summer, we had just started summer vacation. My mother put us in a uh, day camp, which we went every day in the morning and then got, came home at night. First day we go and we had to meet at the uh, elementary school and that's where we would get on the bus and go to the day camp, which was in the country, wherever it was. My mother comes, she takes us to the bus, and she says, okay, well, I'll see you uh, later on when the bus comes in the afternoon. She says, okay, bye, Ma. My my mother leaves. She turns around. She's walking away. With that, my brother says, look, when the line gets to the end by that wall, don't go on the bus. We're going to duck behind that wall. Again, being the younger brother, what do I know? Okay, Steve, we'll do that. They're loading up the bus. It comes uh, for us to get it loaded, and then we duck behind that wall. The bus pulls away, and then my brother and I decided we walk home. Well, we got home <laughs> before my mother got home. She comes in. She sees the two of us there, and she's, she almost passed out. She figured, hey, she's going to be rid of us for the day, but uh, there we were. So, I mean, it was things like that. We weren't that bad, but uh, at sometimes we drove her crazy. So. You said something really interesting about uh, the sadness part of things. And I, I just want to – one of the interesting 
sort of the log line that I, that I pitch with this story is how close, like the, the taste that the kids got with, you know, dance, dance, dance. Right. And I was curious if you had any memories from like around the time of dance, dance, dance and, and, and your impression of what happened with all of that. Like, far- do you remember when that, do you remember hearing that on the radio or anything like oh, that? Yeah. Oh yeah, we, we we heard it a lot on the radio. Uh, yeah, it was very it was a great time in both our lives. I mean, having a brother that was uh, in my mind was very was successful. Uh, the, the the bad thing, and it's not I shouldn't say bad. The one thing that they couldn't overcome, unfortunately, was the uh, prejudice that was involved with the Cavaliers because, as you know, they were probably one of the first biracial groups. And in that, in that day, you were either all white or all black, and they weren't, they weren't mixed groups. Uh, I remember there was a time that uh, the Cavaliers were supposed to be on uh, American Bandstand. I don't think Steve... Anyway, they, it was canceled. They, they never got to go on, and it wasn't until many, many years later I believe Steve really found that the main reason was that they were a mixed uh, singing group. And they didn't, uh, you know, the powers that be at ABC didn't want them to go on. So, which yeah, is, that's, that's, is that's the impression that I've gotten from it, yeah. I, I dug into, like, it's interesting if you look at that time period from 1957 to 1959, if you're a black group, you go on. If you're a white group, you go on. But they don't have a, a mix on stage. No. No. Interesting parts, but the hardest parts of the story, you know? But the ironic thing about that same, they appeared at the, the Apollo Theater. They, I know. They, they shared a dressing room with Little Anthony and the Imperials. And everybody was black except my brother and Lloyd Needleman. So there were two white guys, and the rest of the theater was black. And I wasn't at any of the shows, but I guarantee you, I don't think there was a white guy in the audience. No, it's, it's such an interesting double standard that doesn't play on the other side, you know? Right, right. Be- because even at that time, the the music would have been, say it had just been Jackie and John and, a, you know, a couple kids from Harlem on the stage. Right. They would they would have gone on bandstand if they had the same song. And, and the same is true if it had been you and Steve and Steve Weil and, you know, Lloyd. You guys would have been on bandstand. It's it's so like the kids didn't even see that. I mean, that's not something from my impression of you and of Steve. You guys are from New York. New York was definitely a place where kids were kids. They weren't black kids and white kids and Jewish kids. They were kids. Right. And that that part of the story, that that's why I was asking about the time around dance, 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 because I still hear that song today played on certain doo-wop stations on like internet radio right. and there was um the prejudice carried for forward even further to the financial side of it and that i always thought was weird because what i dug into it took steve a long time to get the rights back to the music right anyways i was just well, I mean, not trying but i mean you what you had young naive they were kids actually i mean you know they were older teenagers but they were kids so what do they know? What do they know about the music, the business end of the music business? Uh, they were taken advantage of. They absolutely were taken advantage of, 
that those stories are now coming uh, have been coming out now in the last couple of years. But um, you know, those agents, those managers, just took advantage as best they could uh, with those young kids. And I'm sure it happened to Dion also. Oh yeah, yeah, it was pervasive at the time. Right. I am curious if you have memories of the community center. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Any uh, any specific stories stand out about that place? No, but it was you know it was to us that that was that was the place that was the place to be to hang out. Um, you know, we look forward to it every day after school going down to the. Well, it happened to be in our building, so it was very convenient for us. <laughs> it, was, it was in the basement of our apartment house. Yeah, I think uh, actually, well, it was a good good place for Steve and the group because they used to sing there. You know, they would rehearse there. They would have a captured audience. Uh, you know, they would um, they would have their own private audience. You know, all the kids that went to the community center would just gather around when they were singing. But yeah, we all went. That was that was the hub. That was the. Uh, the area that our, our life, uh, it was all about the community center at the time. And even uh, the housing project where we grew up, uh, there was one big, um, it was a, almost like a park, but uh, a lot of benches in the, in the summertime we would be outside and uh, we would either be singing and harmonizing. And, uh, and even I would harmonize. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I did, uh, even though I didn't really pursue singing the way Steve did. My daily life was uh, centered around, you know, singing. I mean, that that's what we did. When we hung out, you know, we didn't hang out on the corners, as the old story goes, and harmonizing, but we'd be, we'd be in the, uh, the center of a housing project on the benches, harmonizing and singing. And sometimes when we wanted to get it a little bit more effect, we'd go into the hallways, into the halls, where it was an echo chamber, it would sound better. Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking back now. It was, you know, it was carefree times. You didn't have any worries. What did you have to worry about, you know? <laughs> you were going to school. You were a kid. All you thought about was hanging out with your friends. So you have to keep in mind where we are in this part of the timeline. And, and the truth is, like, it, it was carefree times. That's what everybody says. What we're about to see is we're about to see a group of teenagers in a singing group who managed to get themselves signed to a record label. Then they managed to release a song and they managed to go on tour. So the next thing that we have to examine once we get past the atmosphere, because these guys were sort of in an incubator to like, like this was exactly what they needed to sort of propel them into the atmosphere and into like space. But something happened and it wasn't like one thing. It was a, a small series of things. And I think it sort of gets pushed back on, oh, well, Scott Stevens went solo. That's not really what happens. But there's a series of events along the way that we have to look at in order to really understand, you know, why we do know who Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers are. But it's such a limited period of time and such a limited number of songs. Because I don't think it's Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers broke up. That's not what it feels like to me. It feels more like there was no room for Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers in all the places they needed to be to propel them 
up into the space of like having like huge number one hits. They basically get left out for some very specific reasons that we've mentioned along the way. But we're going to take a look at how all of that went down as the story progresses. This is Communique from WHQR in Wilmington, North Carolina. I'm Gina Gamboni. Music at that time was pretty simplistic. You know, there was, there was subjects were uh, finding a girl, losing a girl, in love with a girl. Um, it, it, it revolved around girls, <laughs> getting girls and. That's Stephen Glaser, both talking and singing. Back in the day, he was known as Scott Stevens, as in Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers weren't just a run-of-the-mill 1950s doo-wop band. They were one of the first racially integrated bands of the era. Stephen Glaser was white and, by the end, the only white person in the band. And he's Jewish. After much encouragement, including from a fortune cookie, Stephen Glaser wrote a book about his mid-century time with the Cavaliers. I asked him what motivated his writing in this book titled White Boy, A Rock and Roll Story. I think the, the main reason was um, to, to coin a Kansas song, Dust in the Wind. I just didn't want to be Dust in the Wind. I always felt that there were very few people that knew anything about the Cavaliers and what we went through. And the story is really about all of the thousands of singers and performers that were just as good or better than sometimes the, the, the artists of the day that were successful. But just for a simple twist of fate, racial prejudice, bigotry, or life just getting in the way didn't make it. And the other reason I wanted to write the book, especially in these times, was people don't really have a baseline as to how far the African-American community has come since 1958 when I was recording. And my group was one of the first integrated groups of the 50s. And some of the reasons that I think we were not successful was because of the things that were thrown in our way to stop us from being successful because we were an integrated group. And, and people today, or especially young people, don't have a baseline as to to see where the, it was just before the, the, the movement and Martin Luther King and the protest started. People today don't know, young kids don't know where, how it was then and how it is now. People all over need to have a baseline as to how far we've, we've come as a nation with regard to racial and religious prejudice, but maybe how far we're sliding back. I could have called the book uh, Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers of Musical History, but White Boy is, we call it a, a hook in a song. <laughs> it's to get to people to say, oh, what is this all about, White Boy? And the last performance of the Cavaliers, I was at the Apollo Theater. I was on stage with Little Anthony and the Imperials, Brooke Benton, Della Reese, Wilbur Harrison, the guy that Kansas City, and the Cavaliers. By that time, my entire group was African-American. I was only a white boy. In the show, the audience, the band. And I was more welcome and accepted and liked in Harlem than any other place in the United States. I think that that is um, something that I felt it should be told. That was Stephen Glaser, formerly known as Scott Stevens of the Cavaliers. He'll be signing copies of his book, White Boy, A Rock and Roll Story, at the Mayfair Barnes & Noble this Saturday afternoon from 2 to 5 o'clock. Discover more at whqr.org.
Thanks for joining us. This is Don't Forget Me, a podcast about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. Music and words are adapted with the permission of Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers. We hope you'll continue with us on the rest of this limited series and musical adventure. Check the show notes to find out more about Scott Stevens and the Cavaliers.